Section 20 of The Sainted Queens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Sainted Queens by Unknown. St. Elizabeth of Hungary, Chapter 2. Louis of Thuringia, the good landgrave, as he was wont to be called, was worthy to be the husband of a saint. Except in the person of his glorious namesake, St. Louis of France, no more perfect picture of the Christian knight and prince has ever been presented to us. His very exterior bore the impress of the noble character within, and many imagined that in his majestic form, his long hair and smile of irresistible sweetness, they saw a striking resemblance to the traditional portrait of the word made flesh. He was distinguished from his earliest years for his angelic purity. He was modest and bashful as a girl, and most reserved in his conversation and demeanor, nor did the atmosphere of a court and the early possession of sovereign power ever sully the brightness of this maidenly purity. The young landgrave's courage was such as to fill up the other side of the knightly character. He was without fear as without reproach, and his bodily strength and agility equaled the grace and dignity of his person. The emperor having made him a present of a lion, he was walking one morning unarmed in the courtyard, when the savage beast, who had escaped from his den, ran roaring towards him. Without a symptom of fear, Louis stood firm, trusting in God, and clenching his hands, he threatened the lion, who came wagging his tail and lay down at his feet. Some of the vassals who saw their lord's danger came to his assistance, and the lion suffered himself to be chained without resistance to the amazement of the bystanders, who looked upon this power over savage beasts as a testimony of the divine favor granted to the piety of the prince and the sanctity of the young Elizabeth. To his courage, Louis added that noble courtesy which St. Francis called the sister of charity. Towards women, his full bearing was of gentle reverence. To his inferiors, he shewed unvarying kindness and affability. He never repulsed anyone by pride or coldness, but delighted to give pleasure to all who approached him. The only passion which seemed to have any sway over him was a love of justice, which, in the cause of God and the oppressed, could be energetic even to sternness, while he seemed insensible to personal injuries. If any of his servants gave him cause of offense, he would simply say, Dear children, do not act thus again, you grieve my heart. In short, the whole life and character of Elizabeth's husband may be summed up in the noble device chosen by him in his boyhood, piety, chastity, justice. The love of Louis for his saintly bride rested, as we have seen, on her loveliness before God, the interior beauty of a character which he was well able to appreciate, though, in spite of the railleries of the court beauties at the royal Beguine, Elizabeth was endowed, according to the testimony of her contemporaries, with extraordinary personal beauty, and a grace and dignity of bearing befitting the defendant of Charlemagne. Never did wedded love more truly typify the union of Christ with his church than in the pure and deep affection of this holy and happy pair. Notwithstanding her extreme youth and the almost infantine vivacity of her love for her husband, Elizabeth never forgot the deep reverence which she owed him as the representative of her heavenly bridegroom. She hastened to obey his slightest sign or lightest word, and kept watchful guard over her least action and most insignificant expression, lest she should in any way grieve or displease him. But the yoke she bore was one of love and peace, for Louis not only left her at full liberty in the exercise of her works of piety and mercy, but encouraged and supported her, only cautioning her with loving prudence when her youthful eagerness would have carried her beyond the limits of safe discretion. Elizabeth was in the constant practice of rising at midnight to meditate upon the birth of our Lord in the cold and darkness of a winter's night. Her husband would sometimes awake and find her kneeling by the bedside, and treat her to lie down and rest. Dear sister, he would say, take care of thyself and go to rest. Then he would take her hand and hold it till she returned to her bed, or till he fell asleep with it locked in his, and she would wet with tears that beloved hand which alone seemed to link her with earth. And so hand in hand they went on their way to heaven." They could never bear to be separated, so that whenever it was possible the landgrave took his young wife with him on the journeys which his duties to his subjects obligated him to undertake. 
Neither storm nor heat nor snow deterred her from bearing him company on the roughest road and on the most toilsome course. She suffered nothing to separate her from him who never sought to separate her from Christ. It sometimes, however, happened that on a distant expedition Louis was obliged to leave her at home, and she then laid aside the royal robes which she wore but to please him, and putting on widow's weeds spent the time of his absence in vigil, fast, and mortification. On his return she arrayed herself again in her richest dress and hastened to meet him with the eager joy of a child. Elizabeth could never bring herself to sit at a distance from her lord at table, as was the custom of ladies of her rank, but her seat was always placed next to his, and her gentle and holy presence served as a check upon the light and thoughtless talk of the young knights around them. So bright and blessed were the days of the dear saint's wedded life, that she seemed to tremble under the excess of her happiness, and sought safety from it in the exercise of the severest mortifications. Her love for her husband, intense as it was, reached not to the surface of those still waters whereupon the image of Jesus was mirrored in the depth of her soul. She would leave his side in the cold silence of the night, to take a severe discipline in memory of the cruel scourging which had been endured for her. She wore haircloth under her royal robes, and continued to exercise the most austere abstinence in the midst of the banquets. But the severity with which she treated herself never made her sad or morose. She would return to her husband or her guests, after the infliction of these austerities, with a bright and gladsome countenance which shed peace and joy around her. She could not endure any display of devotion or any affectation of solemnity, and said of such as put on an exaggerated gravity of demeanor, they seem as if they wish to frighten the good God. Why do they not give him what they can cheerfully and with a good will? She refused not to bear her part in festivities over which her rank often called upon her to preside, and could take her place in the dance or give the prize at the tournament without disturbing the interior recollection in which her soul was ever at peace before God. Yet, though thus free from scrupulosity, the young Landgravine was inflexible whenever she saw that duty required her to be so. She was on one occasion forbidden by her confessor to taste certain articles of food, on which, as he conceived, an oppressive tax had been laid by the prince's ministers. Her obedience sometimes sent her fasting from the splendid banquets where she presided at her husband's side, and where she concealed her abstinence by every art in her power. Some of her ladies, who imitated her in this mortification, testified that she sometimes tasted nothing but a piece of dry bread. She would go through all the offices of the castle, making the most minute inquiries as to the origin of all the food which was to be served up at the landgrave's table, and when she found that there was nothing forbidden, she would clap her hands with childlike delight and say to her maidens, We shall be well off today, we may eat and drink without fear. There are many touching traditions of the tender care by which her divine lord sweetened the privations endured for his sake. Once during her husband's absence, Elizabeth sat down to her solitary meal of dry bread and water. Louis, happening to return unexpectedly, raised his wife's cup to his lips in a token of affection, and to his great surprise found it full of a richer wine than he had ever tasted before. On inquiring of the steward whence he had drawn it, he was told that the Landgravine's cup was never filled with anything but water. Louis held his peace, but inwardly acknowledged that the wedding guest of Cana had been pleased to bless the cup of cold water poured out in his name, and for the love of his poor. The tender charity which had distinguished Elizabeth from her earliest infancy now flowed forth without restraint, under the indulgent and fostering eye of her husband, and won for her the sweet name which she bears to this day of patroness of the poor. She restricted her own personal expenses to the absolute necessities of her position, and often gave away her own clothes when she had no other means of supplying the wants of her poor suppliants. On one occasion she was met by a crowd of beggars, among whom she distributed all the money she had with her. One poor man alone was left unrelieved, and, touched by his piteous complaint, the Landgravine took off one of her jeweled and embroidered gloves and gave it to him. A young knight in her train instantly turned and followed the beggar, from whom he bought the precious glove, which he fastened upon the crest of his helmet as a pledge of divine protection. From that moment, as he declared on his deathbed, the lance of that knight was ever victorious on battlefield and tournament. 
He bore Elizabeth's glove through many a glorious day in Palestine, and as the proud infidels sank beneath his victorious arm, little did they dream that it owed its invisible force to the silken glove of the dear St. Elizabeth. But it was not by gifts alone that she sought to testify her love for the poor of Christ. It was by the patient personal devotion so dear to their hearts and to his. No road was too rough or too steep for her to travel, no cabin too miserable or too noisome to be visited by her gentle presence and cheered by her gladsome smile, no service too great or too little for her to render to those in whom she recognized the presence of the Lord. She devoted herself especially to the care of the lepers, whose most revolting ulcers she would wash and kiss with heroic charity. Once during her husband's absence, she excited the extreme displeasure of his mother, the Landgravine Sophia, by placing one of these unhappy beings in her own bed. The Landgrave returned to the castle just when Elizabeth was busied in dressing the leper's sores. His mother met him as he was dismounting from his horse. "'Fair son,' said she, "'come with me and I will shew you a wonderful proceeding of your Elizabeth.' "'What do you mean?' replied Louis in a tone of displeasure, for he was accustomed to the carping tone in which his mother was wont to speak of his saintly wife. "'Only come and see,' replied Sophia. "'You will see someone whom she loves much better than you.' Then, taking him by the hand, she led him into his own room and pointing to the bed. "'See now, dear son,' said she, "'your wife lays lepers upon your bed, spite of all I can say to her, and will give you the leprosy. You see it yourself.' Louis could not resist a slight movement of impatience. He snatched away the covering of the bed, when, says the historian, the Lord opened the eyes of his soul, and he saw stretched upon his bed one whom alone Elizabeth loved better than himself, the crucified form of him who was for us accounted as a leper. He was speechless with amazement, as was also the proud Landgravine. At last he burst into tears, and turning to his wife, Elizabeth, said he, my sweet sister, I pray thee often bring such strangers to my bed, they shall ever be welcome, and let no one trouble thee in the exercise of thy sweet charity. And then he knelt down and prayed thus to God, O Lord, have mercy on me, a miserable sinner, I am not worthy to behold all these wonders, I know it too well, but help me to become a man after thine own heart, according to thy divine will. Elizabeth took advantage of the deep impression left by this event upon her husband's mind to obtain his leave to erect a hospital midway up the rock on which the castle of Vardberg stands, for the reception of twenty-eight sick or infirm persons chosen from among those who were too weak to be able to climb to the castle itself. She visited them daily and carried them food with her own hands. She performed also the same labor of love for the poor whose scattered huts lay in the valleys around. As with one faithful attendant, she was once slowly descending a very steep rough path, still shewn as the scene of the following miracle, and known by the name of Kneebrecken, Kneebreaker, Elizabeth suddenly came upon her husband in his nightly train returning from a day's hunting. She was bending under the weight of bread, meat, eggs, and other food which she was carrying to the sick poor. Louis insisted upon knowing with what she was laden, and opening her mantle, which she folded tight around her, saw to his amazement that it was filled with red and white roses, more beautiful than any he had ever beheld, which amazed him the more, as the season for roses had long passed. Seeing the trouble of the dear saint at this public manifestation of miraculous favor, Louis sought to soothe her by caresses, but drew back in reverential awe at the sight, of a luminous appearance in the form of a crucifix which was visible over her head. He bade her proceed on her way, and rode slowly home, pondering deeply on the wonders God was ever working through his blessed wife, and carrying with him one of the miraculous roses, which he kept till the day of his death. He afterwards raised a pillar on the spot surmounted by a cross, in memory of that which he had there seen hovering over the head of Elizabeth. Living thus with and for the poor, it is no marvel that God inspired her with that love of poverty, which has marked so many of the souls which have been richest in his grace. The king's daughter, at fifteen, in the midst of the chivalry of Germany, already burned with the same desire of evangelical poverty by which the seraph of Assisi set fire to the world. In the flower of her youth and beauty, that fire had already burned up the last roots of worldly glory and pride. 
In her sovereign estate, says an old writer, she longed for the estate of poverty, that the world might have no part in her, and that she might be poor as Jesus Christ was poor. She made her husband the confidant of all the holy and secret reveries of her childlike imagination, and of all her lofty yet lowly aspirations after a life of evangelical perfection. The royal lady's ideas of poverty were at this period somewhat different from the stern reality which she afterwards endured in her own person. One night, as she and the landgrave lay awake in their bed, Elizabeth thus addressed him, "'Sire, if it would not weary you, I should like to tell you a thought I have had, as to a way of life which we might lead the better to serve God.' "'Tell me then, sweet friend,' said her husband, "'what is this thought of yours?' "'I wish,' said she, "'that we had but one small farm which would just yield us enough to live upon, and about two hundred sheep, and then you could till the ground, manage the horses, and endure all these toils for the love of God, and I could take care of the sheep and shear them.' The landgrave smiled at his wife's simplicity and replied, "'Sweet sister, if we had all this land and all those sheep, I do not think we should be very poor. Nay, some might think us still too rich.' "'What would have been the anguish?' of that noble heart if he could have foreseen that only a few years later that loved and loving wife whom he cherished so tenderly and reverenced so devoutly should be cast forth from her princely home to live houseless friendless childless in a destitution of all outward things equal to that of her great father saint francis and in a solitude of heart far severer than his she had asked to drink of her lord's chalice knowing not its depth and he filled it for her to the brim in her youthful imagination, her husband was associated with all her visions of a devoted and penitential life. The sweet ingredient of human affection was to temper the draught, but he gave it to her, as he drank it himself on Calvary, full of the red vintage which must be trodden alone. End of chapter 2 of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. End of section 20. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.